0: Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today, I'm really excited to have Kazuki Ota. Kazuki, thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So uh, you built a pretty impressive company. For people who aren't familiar with Treasure Data, can you give us a bit of a background?
1: Sure. Uh, Treasure Data provides a CDP, Customer Data Platform. So we're empowering billions of people's lives easier, safer, much better. While becoming a custodian of that data. So, a lot of world's leading brands, uh, such as automotive, CPG, retail, healthcare, government, they're using our product to make the user experience much better.
0: So, um, I was just watching uh, your speech, the presentation you did for the SASTER conference about how did you, you know, what were the big decisions that helped you get from? $10 $10 million a year in annual recurring revenue, up over the $100 million a year annual recurring revenue number. Um, can you, I mean, that might just be a fun place to start. Can you talk about that pivot of, you know, saying like, hey, we had to disappoint some people, we had to make some hard decisions, and ultimately, it over 10 times the company?
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the history of myself and the company. So first of all, I started this company, you know, when I was 25, nothing to lose. Uh, so my parents was actually running a little pharmacy store in rural Japan. So I was like, um, I guess, born as an entrepreneur. So I actually started the first company when I was 21st and then run this company for like four years, I guess. And then we scaled from five people to 40 people. And then I had an opportunity to work with the company who is Silicon Valley based and they scaled the company from five people to 500 people in like three years. So I was like, okay, I can't be in Japan, this little island. I have to be in Silicon Valley, run, the, run and build a global software business. I have nothing to lose. Even when I was 25, I couldn't speak any English, but I had a fortune to have a really good co-founder. So I started this business, Treasure Data and uh, i measured in computer science when i was in university and uh, my professor has built the world's fastest supercomputer so basically half a million computers combined into one system and then they run a lot of simulations like aerodynamics nuclear and helping all the scientific projects right and i was a part of the team to build the file system for that supercomputer which obviously gave me an opportunity to handle large, large amount of data, right? Imagine half a million computers generating ton of data, right? That was a fun project, but it's a science project. But I thought, okay, the power of data can be democratized against all the company on the earth. At the same time, the supercomputing environment is only limited to the government use. So I wanted to have an easy access the data analytics for majority of the world. And coincidentally, around 12 years ago, cloud is becoming the thing. So our original idea is, okay, why don't we provide huge data analytics infrastructure in the cloud and then democratize access to the data? And what happened was, okay, I admit I couldn't speak any English, go to a lot of investors. First of all, I have no one, right? I have no background, I'm not Stanford grad, I'm not ex-Facebook or Google. And people are like, okay, who is this guy? And second, they thought, okay, who will throw away the data to the cloud? Because the concept of cloud is not popular out there, right? But I guess 10 years later, everyone does right now. So we want that bet. Um, So what happened was like, okay, we run this company for the first four to five years, and we probably scaled to like, um, you know, 100 150 people. But what happened was uh, all of the large giant uh, tech companies like Google, Microsoft, trying to get in Amazon into our space, which is data analytics. And they are trying to commoditize as well. And obviously, they have more budget, or more tech investment, cheaper alternative. So our company got into trouble. So customers are churning, our deal size is shrinking, and uh, they have more competitions and choice, right? So that came to your original question. Okay, we have to change the course. Otherwise, we won't survive in this environment. And I still remember this, but one of our angel investors was Jerry Yan, who is the founder of Yahoo, the search engine company. And uh, so no, he and um, our team, including myself, co-founder, had this like 30-minute meeting and saying, hey, Jerry is like, okay, hey, there's only two choices. You raise like a billion dollars to fight against all these large giants or build more application on top of your product so that you have more vertically integrated application stack, right? Uh, so basically he's saying you go horizontal or vertical. And then, because you're like, okay, no one in Silicon Valley, you can't raise a billion dollars. There's only one way to do this, which is to create more value stack on top of the platform. So that's why we decided to go after more marketing use case where we saw 90% of our customer is actually using our product to analyze customer data. And marketing is the department who has huge demand on access to the data. So we decided to build more marketing-oriented application on top of our data platform. We didn't know what to call, but you know, we started calling ourselves a CDP customer platform. It became a thing. So long story short after, we exceeded 100 million ARR annual recurring revenue, closing a bunch of global logos. And right now, we're probably having 2 to 3 billion people's data inside through all these uh, 400 brands and what is interesting is on the earth there are 7.5 billion people right now 4.5 are internet connected and then we probably have 40 to 50 percent of internet connected populations data right so that just excites me like how influential our tools and solution could be so that Billions of people's lives become much easier and safer, more convenient. At the same time, we have a lot of brands who store, like who are targeting more kids or teenagers, right? So we have to protect that type of data. So that was like a 12 year story, scaling from three people to 700 people across 20 countries. So got a lot of luck and challenges.
0: So, um. And and have you guys disclosed how much you've raised total to date?
1: Yeah, so we raised fifty five million so far. But you know, it's interesting enough. Like we sold the company one time, right? So we exited one time. It was a six hundred million dollar exit. You know, good for everyone. But then, uh, a year and a half, I've actually a little burnt out and quitted the company. But last year, I actually decided to come back as a CEO and running the company again. So there's a little bit of interesting story.
0: Yeah. Um, And are you guys announcing what your current valuation is? Yeah, it's more than a billion dollar.
1: How much? Last loan. More than a billion dollar from last loan.
0: Great. It's probably, you know, we have so many different kinds of uh, people on the show but probably my favorite is exactly where you're at. These people that, that grew from zero to a billion and, and through these ranks, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I have so many questions, Um, but I, one thing I want to start with is what kind of advantages do you think you had growing up in Japan? How has how that helped you, the way you grew up? Oh my
1: God, that's a really good question. I will say, you know, if you look at the Japan business, right, There's no huge business except automotive manufacturing, but Japan has the most number of companies who survive more than 200 years, right? Whether it's small or SMB. I mean, American companies are big, like Apple, Microsoft, Fastcoin, but there are very few who survive like 200 years, right? So I think what, what was helpful was this more like Customer-centric, relationship-centric um, culture or mindset. You know, as I mentioned, in the same category, I've observed a company popped out from Facebook. You know, ex Google started a similar product. Um, someone who popped out from Stanford uh, computer science grad built the same product. But after ten years, they are all gone. I think what we have done really well is this customer obsession and really make sure providing really good support and services is yes, we're the software company, but, you know, a lot of our customers saying, oh, wow, your company actually have Japanese quality services on top of it or mindset. Right. Yeah. Which I really like it, you know, although a lot of our employees are American based, but, you know, that's how they perceive, right. By looking at me. So I think that was a, interesting comment coming from the customer
0: you know we' were, we were talking beforehand like how obsessed I've been with Japan since being a five year old and all my martial arts over the years, and yeah and, uh, <laughs> and this nobody. what I didn't tell you is like I even named my oldest daughter, her middle name is Hiroko,
1: oh wow, okay, yeah. so you're obsessed with it. I mean Jerry Yan's wife is Japanese, so obviously there's a lot of people who are obsessed with Japan, and then that helpful uh-huh. for me.
0: Yeah, so uh we were talking beforehand about, you know, I did competitive judo um in my teenage years and and you did judo, but all the way to the black belt level. I'm interested, you know, judo is such a judo is such a, a unique martial art in certain ways. It doesn't fit into some of the categories that the other ones do. And uh, you know, I took so I took taekwondo, karate, kokando, kravmaga, and and then about a decade Judo, and I've used my Judo 100 to 1 of the other things. Uh, I, I'm interested for you, like, when you think about the discipline and the principles and like such hands-on learning instead of theoretical punching the air kind of stuff, are, are there any lessons from Judo that you feel like have, have helped you as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, what I learned is, basically one, is consistency, right? I mean, it's not like you can be a great CEO in just one night. You just got to figure it out. Like you have a consistency. You need to be positive every day, although all the challenges, right? And then you have to train you well. You have to be a better person than yesterday as a human. You know, only 1% of improvement every year or every day gives you like 3x every year, right? So, you know, I always feel like, okay, there are some people goes to school like MBA learn everything about business and then okay let's start the business I was opposite right I saw all the scrappiness of my father and mother running the business right and they are almost changing the business model every five years and ten years right it's almost like a surviving rather than applying the theory, right so I'm actually enjoying Being an entrepreneur where, okay, there's no fixed skill set or learning or course you have to take as an entrepreneur and being successful. It's all about every day thinking about where you want to go. And then, you know, for my case, I came back and become a CEO to build a billion dollar ARR business, which we still have a way to go. But uh, at the same time, before we go to the bed, thinking about that, how can we go there by myself and also with the team for sure, right? What's lacking? What do I need to improve? And I think martial arts is the same, right? How can I be a better fighter, martial arts uh, uh, practitioner? And um, that probably coincides with the any sports for sure.
0: Yeah, it's like you can talk a good game in judo, but either you won or you didn't. You know. Yeah, you just, exactly. You All ta- the results.
1: Right. Yeah. You
0: can, you can talk a good game in entrepreneurship, but either the customer went with you or they didn't.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, you know, what I also learned is like, um, a lot of worlds is in, in equal. I would say. You know, I don't have a good body, to be honest, as an Asian. And when I was fighting within judo, they have like, I don't know, I was sixteen. But there's, like, a very tall, physically rich, like, 10-year-old kid just threw me out in, like, a second or two, right? It's unfair, (laughs) but it's the world, right? But still, you have to think about, okay, how can we actually beat this guy, right? And uh, I think that type of thinking, like, never give up type of thinking
0: helped me, too. (laughs) See, I was the tall, skinny guy in all my weight classes, and and there's a large Japanese population in Western Canada where I fought, and they would always do drop senagi on me and like put my head straight into the mat, you know. So I had, I like had to think like, man, I keep getting worked, you know. What am I gonna do about it, right, for the next tournament? Um, so, uh, kind of going along the same theme, you know your years as the chief technology officer and then chief executive officer. Can you talk about what that looked like for you, this getting the 1% better? Like when you think about scaling yourself as a CEO and, and obviously you're not stopping at, a, at 100 million AR, you wanna to go to a billion dollar a year annual recurring revenue. Can you, can you give us some examples of questions you ask yourself or things that you do to try to you know, add to your skill stack?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I have a really good coach. So it's almost like a athlete, right? So, um, you know, the biggest uh, challenge for me is like, what's the gap I need to fill in, right? So I have this like a uh, CEO executive coach. I talk with him almost, um, you know, once in two weeks. And then he's a professional CEO coach, ex-entrepreneur, and he is always asking tough questions, right? Cause are you spending your time to the right problem you need to, right? Cause people have this tendency of bias where they are spending more time with fun stuff or something you're good at it. But a lot of areas of growth comes from the area you not necessarily enjoying. Right? So he's always asking me tough questions. Okay. What is the company's problem right now? One, two, three. Okay. Are you actually spending time on it or rather you're drugged? If you're drugged to other initiatives, you just say no to the people and spend your time so that your 700 people is actually, you know, becoming more productive. Because your one minute could change 700 people, right? That's such a leverage, right? And then especially for me... um, I'm more like a product guy, product and engineering, computer science guy, became a CEO. So obviously, I don't know much about the operations and finance and all these, which is the obvious gap. So I read a lot of books. I'm learning a lot from the public company CEOs, earnings call, listening it, how they handle some tough questions. Obviously, right now, it's not a Good market. So a lot of CEO has a uh, public CEO has tough questions, right? So how do they handle it and then just learning from it? Right. So, I mean, and also the other way I was, th- I thought it was interesting is I also did the, uh, uh, the survey across my team. So what is my strengths? What is my weakness? Right. Obviously I'm a computer science data guy, and then, you know, the improvements my team want to make is like uh, I lack empathy so how can I show more empathy be more like a human while executing with the data on top of it right I think balancing these two looks like uh, my areas of improvement right so those came up but I guess you know I mean you have to be really humble right I mean, on one end, people can say, oh, wow, you achieved 100 million ARR. But I'm like, okay, it's just the beginning, right? So if you look at Facebook, for example, they have similar um, amount of people's data, although they own, we don't own, but uh, they make a thousand times more revenue than treasure data. So the um, sky's the limit, right? You just have to figure it out, be humble. How can you make yourself and company better?
0: This is a word that I hear, you know, you look at these 750 episodes that I've done of this show. I've had less than 20 with individuals that have actually grown from zero to billion. Uh, and this is a word I hear a lot, humility, uh, specifically in that group, maybe, maybe more so than, than the other folks. And so it's like, I hear about listening. I hear about customer obsession. I hear about humility. I hear over and over just this highest level that you're at. Um what do you think what do you think folks at your level are 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 thinking about humility that others aren't or what do you for the rest of us who want to become more humble and apply it to the benefit of our customers and staff what advice do you have for us
1: I think it's um running the business is all about fighting against the bias you have right the way you operate right now won't be applied to the way you operate to achieve, like, 10 next, right? And um, as a human nature, there's this, like, a natural resistance in the brain to be changed, but you have to break it, right? So you can't really be proud of what you have achieved. Rather, um, I think the biggest challenge is unlearning, is what we call. But, uh, you know, how you actually can unlearn from your achievement, adapt new perspective as you scale, right? And then that's just the process of being humble, right? You have to be open about opinion. And uh, some people say, hey, Kaz, this is not working. Well, I thought it was working. That's why we came here. But, you know, that's a bias you have with this past success or little success, right? So I think open minded and then being unlearning and then every three, five years, you need to be in a different position, right? And um I think that's just what excites me, to be honest.
0: When it comes to practical advice for breaking our own biases, what are questions you ask yourself or what are exercises you do or or how do you what what can that actually look like? for us to try and break our biases?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, I intentionally have time to talk a little more long-term versus uh, short-term, right? A lot of people are really good at solving the uh, day-to-day issue. But then if you're not thinking about mid-to-long-term strategy, where the goal is, it doesn't make sense, right? So I think, first of all, you know, I passed like 37, Age of thirty-seven right now, a lot of people doesn't have a dream. First of all, right. So I have this dream of building a billion-dollar ARR business, and then I wanted to achieve until the age of forty or something, right? So when I was at age of probably eighteen, I wanted to make a first million in age of twenty and thirty, a uh, 40 a billion dollars. So that was my rough estimate or timeline. I wanted to build a business. But, uh, you know, I'm actually five years delayed, but it's okay, right? As long as you have a big dream, you have something to pursue. If you don't have a big dream, you kind of fit into that small world, right? So that vision should come first.
0: Well, I want to talk about this vision because I'm interested in the difference between having a big dream and wishful thinking. Because I think there's a lot of people with wishful thinking. That don't have the dream that you have where you're you're like breaking it down and recognizing the skill sets these public CEOs have that you don't and like in your yeah. mind, in your mind, what's the difference between that kind of vision, that kind of dream versus wishful thinking?
1: I mean, it has to be concrete, right? It's almost like thinking backwards, okay. To become a billion to run to build a billion dollar business in like five years, what do you actually need to, right? Okay. You might need to achieve 30, 40% growth year over year for next five years, okay? Then you have to build this amount of pipeline, this amount of clothes, this amount of salespeople. And then I need to build these product lines, right? So I think people can just dream it, but then you have to think about how to get there. And I think there's hundreds of ways to go there. Right. And then, you know, macro environment, economic environment, world effects, everything is changing. Right. But at the same time, you have this like place to be there. Right. The other way also to look at is, you know, there's a lot of luck, too. Right. You know, there's a lot of things you can't really control. But I would say, you know, the way I'm thinking is there are big waves in the world, right? For example, 10 years ago, I thought, first, um, data is going to grow over time and then exponentially, right? And it's true for last 10 years. It's probably true for the next 20 years, right? That's a big wave. And then there's this like, cloud and compute wave, mobile wave coming in. So I, I always thought, okay, Well, me as a one person out of 7.5 billion, I can only paddle, right? I can swim a little bit, but there are huge waves coming. So I can swim and paddle a little bit to the point where wave is coming and then wave will take me to the father or, you know, something which I can't achieve just by myself, right? So I think you know, listening what where, where the world is going and then puddle a little bit there, I, I think that's also important too.
0: I feel like there's so many good things in that answer.
1: What's <laughs> <Both laughs> provoking? I don't know. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, we might have to have you back on so I can answer, ask more questions. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, I want to ask a different question that I've really enjoyed asking both people who have grown from zero to a billion as a co-founder and investors that have invested in these zero to a billion stories. Um, when you think about the concept of product market fit, you know, is our product what our, what our clients are really looking for? Um, it gets talked about like crazy. It's, I mean, people are always talking about it and people are always claiming they have it. And yet people have it to different different degrees. When you think about true product market fit, how do you define it?
1: Yeah, so you know, one of our angel investor is the gentleman called Bill Tai. So he actually invested into Zoom or Canva and then also treasure data. It's lots of success and legendary VC, right? So to build a great business, he told me there's a couple of things. First of all, you have to be you have to have a big market. In our case, it's the data, right? Without the market, no matter how you are clever and everything, you can't capture it, right? So kind of the way uh, I talked about it, and then second, you have uh, the right team for that market, right? So whether you're starting alone with your background or you know augmenting with your co-founder, you need to have the team. And then there's timing, right? That he said it's really hard to read, but. For us, the wave of cloud and mobile, that was a perfect storm and timing where we can get into this business, right? So if you have market, team, and timing right, you will achieve reasonable amount of um, um, accuracy with the product-market fit, right? So that was his status. And that's the investor's mindset, right? And then for us as an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter, you know. It's all about customers, right? So grab one customer, two customer, three customers, listen what they want. And I actually think doing boring things more beautifully makes a lot more money because, you know, a lot of sexy things people just want to work on, right? Like let's say procurement or collecting garbage no one wants to do. But what if someone do it beautifully with the algorithm, and technology, and computing? That makes a lot of money, right? So just um, you know, guided by the customer, you know, be customer obsession. That's good. I also want to talk about uh, product market fit in multiple stages. Even though you probably have one way of product market fit, after three years, that's going to be saturated. So you always go after new markets, new vertical, new customer segments, new product so that you need to keep finding product market fit, right? But it's not like, okay, you find a product market fit and done. You as an entrepreneur, you have to always find the opportunity outside of your comfort zone to get more product market fit. And then that
0: creates the snowball effect so i want to go back through some of these things this idea of doing something boring more beautifully is the point there because it's a less crowded space those improvements will stand out so much more yeah just people will
1: pay for it right because um you know would you do rather do collecting the garbage by yourself or would rather pay for someone to do it right so I think it applies to the technology area too. Like, okay, what about payment, procurement, approval processes and all these? Those are boring things. But if someone, you know, solve those boring issues oh, in a more beautiful way, people's going to pay for it. Right? Yeah. That's just my thesis.
0: Okay. uh, And then this idea of, of product market fit, it's almost like, Treating product market fit like a continuous improvement pro- process or a continuous improvement project that's never going to be done. When you think about the principles to embrace, when, it, when it's like, hey, we don't want to get 10% better. We want to get 10 times better. Do you have any thoughts about, we want to, you know, we want to treat our product market fit like a continuous improvement process that can make our business 10 times bigger. Any thoughts about how that attitude needs to be or principles of that or anything like that?
1: Yeah, there's this like a famous strategy called bowling alley strategy. You know bowling, right? Yeah. So um, what this says, says is, okay, you have to go after multiple markets or vertical like a bowling. So first you dominate and conquer little market, which becomes the first pin. And then you have to find out next pin. The way you find out next ping is okay. One, it's on the product gap side, right? You build very only a few features to go after those next market. At the same time, you can also use first pins, customer reference or customer base to go to next, right? So for us, what happened was our first pin was the mobile gaming company who wants to analyze a lot of customer data. Then they actually referred us a lot of mobile advertisement company who is actually a client of that mobile gaming company, right? So the referral from those company actually make us dominate that market next. And then what turned out is, okay, we actually go to the retail or CPG brand out there with the same um, methodology. So to answer your question, okay, I mean, for us or small company as an underdog, you always have to find a niche market, dominate, and then go to the next. What's the leverage we can have in terms of product and customer base, right? And then, so that's like, a, you know, coming back to my point of continuous product market fit as well.
0: So for you, what did you feel like was the leverage that would let you dominate in a niche? What was that for Treasure Data? Yeah,
1: so the force pin is always like uh, art, right? You have to create it nowhere. I think, um, you know, after that, it's all about reputation, customer satisfaction, customer referral, and then always trying to build a feature to go after a new vertical or, you know, targeting new type of budget, right? So for example, we have been targeting more around getting marketing budget. But then we became a number one independent company for CDP. What's next? We need to go beyond marketing. So in the company, we created this initiative called Beyond Marketing. And we built another product line to use customer data within the Connex Center. So that's another type of budget we can acquire with the um, the reasonable amount of, uh, amount of R&D investment, right? So you just have to make sure, okay, we dominated this. What's next, right? And what's the leverage we have? But for us, it's all about customers.
0: So many people think they're listening to their customers, um, but they're probably not listening to them at the level that you guys are because they're not attracting the new customers that you guys attract. Do, do you have any hints for like, you, you talked about being customer obsessed. You've talked multiple times about get a hold of your customer and really listen to them. What do you think, entrepreneurs hear advice like that all the time, but they must not be taking it as serious as you guys because they're not getting the results you guys are getting. What advice do you have for people to be better at that?
1: Yeah, I guess like uh, our business is really unique. When we achieved 100 million ARR, we only had 300 customers. I actually visited 80% of them in person, right? So our price point is really high, so that's why I take like crazy amount of flights and travel and meet them, right? So first of all, just meet them, right? The volume matters. The second one is what is also interesting is customer will tell you what they want, but you always need to ask you why, right? Well, let's, let's take like a famous iPod story where until customers see the iPod product, they didn't know they wanted, right? So I think, you know, it um, it's also applies to many product areas and technology areas where, you know, customers say, okay, I want XYZ. All right. That's fine. But always why ask, okay, why do you need, right? What's the problem you are trying to solve? And then they started describing about the problem. I think that's what's important right so in my mindset you always have to collect and collect feedbacks around what type of challenge they are trying to solve rather than what feature they want and once you have a problem statement across many customers like 200 300 whatever number right you started hearing same thing right oh okay 10 customers told me same thing so there must be something oh this 20 customer told me something, right? So uh, I think there are certain skill sets about uh, asking why and then abstracting the, the challenges across the customer portfolio. It's not like, okay, customer told you to build ABC and do it. I don't think that will yield the best outcome.
0: Oh, that's so great. Uh, let's shift gears again. Uh, team. You've talked about team. Bill talked about team. Um, you know, so often, especially as, as companies are really having stratospheric growth, they're told so often things like, you know, one of the main roles you'll have as CEO is to be the, is to be an incredible recruiter, to get yep. the best people to want to work at our company. What have you found successful when it comes to treasured data? Yeah.
1: I mean, to be honest, I made a lot of mistake, <laughs> right? It's the hard part. And, uh. We hired a bunch of executives and VPs, a lot of people, but I would say, you know, uh, you know, we had a lot of failure too. And then, you know, the area where we are successful is really thinking about how you are aligned with your culture, right? So we're humble as an value, openness, uh, reliable, and those are our core principles. So I don't need any like a bossy type of leadership, right? So as I mentioned, I'm a Japanese, right? And then being humble is important. We talked about it, right? So I'd rather have someone who can actually like learn the crazy way. So, you know, for example, we have one guy who started as a salesperson and now now is in charge of the entire region as a GM. Right. He grown up so much last 10 years. We have a person who was cutting uh, at the New York's deli store. And on one day, he thought, okay, I'm going to go into tech area. So he went to school for two years, got a first tech job here. Now he runs 30 people sales engineering organization, makes four to five X. I'm so proud of it. Right. So... I think, um, you know, when you interview, there are a lot of people who had a experience in large company, but really what you are looking for is, okay, is this guy or lady can roll up the sleeves, constantly learning, and after five years, can they be totally different? It's a really hard um, thing to decide, but or, you know, uh, look off, look for, but uh, that's what's
0: uh, working here, especially in the high-growth environment. So let's say that you do find them. You know, you're like, yeah, I think this person is that kind of person. What have you found has helped you get them to want to come over? So once you've identified them, how do you attract them to treasure data?
1: Yeah, it's like, I think it's all about vision and opportunity, Right. Like I mentioned, like uh, the way I talked is, okay, we have billions of people's data inside through all these brands So come over. And then, you know, I think before tech or internet, there's no job who you can influence billions of people, right? Right. Now you can at Treasure Data. And it's a 700 people organization. It's not like Facebook where they have 100 more people, right? And uh, if you think about this, influencing billions of people probably have more leverage than the most famous artist on the earth. Right? And uh, so I think the opportunity to being a treasure data, the multiplier is much, 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 much higher than the other job. So just excites them about the mission and vision and then align with the culture and value. And then, obviously, financial side, you know, the, the bonus, stock structure, um, the base salary.
0: I think those three matters. Well, what are, what are zero to billion lessons that I didn't ask about? What are the... That I didn't ask? Huh?
1: That's a really good question. I would say it's a marathon. It's not like sprint, right? I think it takes 10 years or more. And um, your uh, physical health and mental health matters, right? So I always try to work out. I always try not to work on Sunday and Saturday, try to have more personal time, right? So entrepreneurship, um, people also think about working like crazy. It, it does in certain sense, but it's not sustainable, right? So take it as a mid- to long-term game, not the short-term there's no 10 next in one year. Well, they do sometimes, but you're not Mark Zuckerberg, I would say, right? You have to take and admit that he's an outlier. A lot of business gets built with the solid pace rather than 100X, 10X every year, which people are aspiring for. But, you know, you just have to build, close one customer happy, right? And that's just... um. Probably that's what I wanted to say here.
0: I am impressed with the way your brain thinks about sales and sales reps and and the really scientific approach and data. I mean, not surprised it's data-driven, but um, to me, it feels like you have spent a lot of time thinking about sales and your AEs and, and yeah. how you're going to approach things. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. What are What are your biggest insights from going so deep into sales and the science of sales and how you're going to structure it?
1: Yeah, so, you know, when I think about the SaaS business, right, it's all about the funnel. So first of all, we have to get people's attention and awareness, right? So grab some lead, and then we have an XDR organization who calls them and then see if they are open to meet with us. So those people um uh schedule the call and then our AE AAE, together with SE sales engineering, they're trying to close uh with the close the deal with the people who wants to meet, and then we have a customer success organization who will expand the existing client's usage and then, you know, uh, obviously with the payment uh, as well or revenue as well, right? So it's an entire funnel from awareness to acquisition to expansion and yes, sales process, uh, you have to master an art, but also there's a lot of science too, right? There's a lot of finance math inside where, okay, how many millions of dollars each AE or teams or region you have to close, right? So let's assume the close rate of 30%. Okay. I need this amount of lead with the average size of X, Y, Z. Okay, now you have a goal for marketing. So to do this, you have to spend this amount of dollar for the marketing, right? So there's an assumption and models you can create with the business you have. And then you always need to check whether they are on track or not. And I would say, you know, if you're on track, I'm okay uh, having someone running and then, you know, praise them, right? Kudos to them. But at the same time, if you got off the track, we need to figure out, okay, why it's off track? What's the wrong assumption we made? And we need to course correct. So there's a lot of science around how you sell for sure.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that in general organizations don't do as great a follow-up when it comes to sales follow-up. Like you think about these, these, these numbers, right? So many organizations are like, oh, we're making good money. Uh, and they don't have that level of discipline that you're talking about of, of really checking how are we doing according to our assumptions. And I'm guessing it's, do we need to change the assumption? Do we need to change the process? Do we need to change the rep? Do we need to change the training? I'm guessing there's like a few different levers there, or how would you say that better?
1: Yeah, I would say like it's increasingly becoming digital and data oriented, right? So I was talking with one pharma company before uh, COVID, they go to doctor's office and talk and trying to sell the pharmaceutical products, but you know, and they have like an hour. But now after COVID, no one wants to have someone coming into the office, right? So they only have 15 minutes with Zoom session selling the same product. It's extremely hard, right? Then your sales team needs to understand who you are selling to. What do they want beforehand? And in doing a lot of preparation, if they're not interested in, that's fine. But make sure you need to follow up again within three months, six months. You have to be really rigorous about it, right? So I think this is like... You know entire movement around digitalization of how you do sales and marketing and uh, that's where people are going i also see some like this general trend where people are working remotely now right and uh you know employee sees this as an opportunity to have a better work-life balance but a lot of employer had some doubt, hey, is this guy or people actually working, right? So there's like a little bit of misalignment there. And I think data can save it, right? So as long as you can show your performance, follow-up, consistent amount of engagement with your prospects and customer, um, you can work from anywhere, right? So I think this remote environment, working environment, Forces people to have a transparency around your activities and results. Uh, and that's what I'm, I'm observing across all the companies.
0: So uh, maybe a final question here. Um, I'm thinking about let's say that you guys are you guys are trying to get more awareness and more connections with chief marketing officers at large companies, right? Like so, you know, I had the chief, former chief marketing officer of Procter and Gamble on the show, former chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson. I've had on the show. Let's say you're trying to get awareness with those individuals back when they were the CMOs. What, what works for, for you guys or what, what's been successful? Yeah,
1: so I'm saying there's like, a, you know, in this world, there's no single channel who uh, makes people aware of it, right? It's omni-channel, right? So marketing has evolved, become single channel to omni-channel and then become corporate-wide. So for us, there's many ways, like one, you know, campaigns, like a digital and most physical, including the events. And we also host a lot of webinars. And we also have a lot of partners who has already existing connection with Procter Gamble, for example, other brands. Right. And we also have an outbound who sends like nice letters and, you know, books around uh, our product into all these activities. Right. So, you know. I would say, and then I, I think the, the biggest importance is measure it, right? Which channel is actually working better or not? And then continuously improve the conversion rate per dollar investment. I think that's, that's what uh, you know, gives you two x more lead next year.
0: Well, listen, you've been so generous with your time here. Uh, what do you want to leave people with?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I really want to have more people starting the business, right? I mean, not recommending for everyone, but there's a lot of changes in terms of the world, technology, geopolitics. I would say think of this as a chance, right? And yes, we will more likely to have a recession, but a lot of great companies was born under the recession because they're just strong, Right. So I want a lot of people to start thinking about how can you make a difference to the world, right? So that's probably one message I wanna give to the audience. The second is remember treasure data, right? I'm not ashamed to sell our product or advertise product a little bit here, but uh, if you need to make your customer more delighted, engaged, uh, not churning and leaving from your brands or businesses, you have to use customer data in this digital era, right? And Treasure Data provides the solution, customer data platform, to achieve your um, revenue increase or cost reduction from customer data point of view. So, please visit www.treasuredata.com to check out, and then please connect with LinkedIn with me, Kazuki Ota. I'm happy to give any advice, uh, and I would love to connect with you.
0: That's so great. Thank you again for doing this.
1: Thank you very much, Jess. Okay, bye everyone.